As we come back together, we continue our look at the book of Acts. We are moving ahead into the beginning of chapter 8. We saw last week how the revolution had its first technical martyr, Stephen, a witness to our Lord and Savior, having served in the role of a deacon in ministering to the freemen who were uh, Jewish folks who, according to history, had moved back to Jerusalem for the, from the far-flung regions of the empire. And uh, many of them had lived in slavery, had worked all of their lives in a desperate longing to get back to Jerusalem, to be in the city where the temple was, to be in the Holy Land and the Promised Land. And what they had experienced in Stephen's preaching was that increasingly there was a question being raised as to whether or not those outward historical realities, the geography of the temple, the geography of Jerusalem and, Jerus and, uh, and the Holy Land were being transformed by this new king and kingdom created by the resurrected Jesus Christ. As he sits enthroned at the right hand, that idea so inflames the crowds uh, that they stone him. And we see that this kingdom, this revolution that Jesus is bringing is going to have real repercussions for the world in which we live. That those traditional power structures, whether they are the power structures of the Sanhedrin and the temple, which rule from on top, or the power structures of cultural shifts and the mob, which Rome always feared, the fear of keeping the masses placated. And if they were to become riled, what danger that would cause for the elite. Those two traditional power structures are always going to be upset one way or another by the gospel. Because the power of the kingdom comes from service. And it also comes from a transformation of our understandings of where we find our significance and identity no longer in our outward activities, no longer in geography or in buildings, but in the new geography, a new heavens and a new earth, and a new building built with living stones. And so we have at, then at this crucial moment the end of one time of the early church, that is to say it's primarily Jerusalem-focused existence, and we have then the church being spread out uh, initially through the rest of uh, the Mediterranean, and then around the world. And so I want us to look just a little bit this morning at what caused the persecution uh, and what were the implications of the persecution and uh, what we might uh, perhaps learn from it. But let's put the text in front of us, just three verses uh, today. Uh, Acts chapter 8, uh, chapter with starting with sort of what we call in scholars' verse 1b, uh, and then through verse 3. Hear now God's word. On that day, a great persecution, that is the day of Stephen's stoning, broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Holy Spirit, we ask that as we continue to worship, as we continue to desire to see the greatness of our God, uh, 
that we might see it even in this rather difficult text where we see your church stretched, where we see its understanding again revolutionized by the revelation of who you are. We pray, Lord, that you would bless the preaching of your word. Whatever is said this morning that is not true or beneficial for the building up of your people, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So I don't know if you've uh, heard sort of the general understanding of the human brain when I was growing up is that you could kind of be a right brain or a left brain person and... The, the, the orthodoxy was that basically at a certain age, your brain stopped creating new neural pathways and there was, you were sort of stuck in your ways, basically, if at a certain age you had a certain way of thinking. That was all there was. And of course, uh, as is often true with science, that was partially true, but then as God continues to give us the ability to delve into the richness of his creation, we found that the brain is actually far more dynamic than uh, we originally thought. And in fact, the most recent scholarship indicates that brains are actually able to be rewired at any age. That there is a way in which we engage with truth and with knowledge and with the way we're supported and encouraged. How we speak to one another is incredibly important. We can actually build new pathways, new ways of thinking, new ways of seeing and perceiving the world. The old uh, adage, can't teach an old dog new tricks may not actually be as true as we may have thought or some of us like me who are lazy may have hoped because there's no better excuse than not having to grow than the fact that my brain is now no longer capable of firing new synapses. But in the goodness of God, the reality is that our brains were created in such a way that we can be renewed and revived in our thinking. That the hope of the gospel is not just the transformation of a new heart, but that new heart can and does, through good fellowship and the reading of God's word and worship, actually allow our brains to be rewired in line with the goodness of the gospel. But that doesn't happen automatically. It is a process. It's one of the challenges of God always is that we find that God is a God of process. He's not a God of magic. Even as he promises a new heart, which is a reality, there is the unpacking of the implications of that new heart, which is a process for us. God rarely makes things magically change. And even as miracles are simply the beginning of a new life for someone, a new opportunity, whether you're given the the vision or you're given your legs back or they were cleansed from leprosy, It was a miraculous restoration, and yet there was still a life to live, a process and a journey to engage in. What they tell us is that our brain can be wired, of course, uh, in ways that are negative. And so when we hear negative things about ourselves, when we are regularly as children, for example, told uh, negative things, when we live and exist in fear, uh, in instability, in abuse, when that is the feedback we get, that wires brains to act a certain way. It's why oftentimes it can be uh, hard when you have two kids in a room, one who has experienced fear and abuse and the other who has experienced love and nurture, and you want them both to behave similarly, there may not be the same ability mentally at that moment. 
Because one lives out of fear and the other out of a sense of love and security. One lives out of a sense of needing to fight for attention, the other living in the assurance that they are doted over, loved, and acknowledged. Those children will function differently. Their neural pathways of how they think and perceive the world, your action towards them, their perceived reaction to you, all of that is how our minds are formed by the environment around us. It is a huge component. Interestingly enough, it's not just negative. It is actually unhealthy positive. And so there's a new study that just shows, and this will, I'll get back to the sermon in a minute. There's a new, I'm just telling you fun stuff I found. There's a new study that shows that children who, when they do something well, let's say you're taking a math test, and the child takes a math test, does very well. And if you say to the child, of course you did well, you're very talented. That child doesn't usually become terribly good at problem solving and can actually plateau because they think they're innately good at it. And on the other hand, if you tell a child, I'll bet you worked hard to get that answer and you did a great job, that child is still being positively affirmed and yet what it builds in their neural pathways is the expectation that when they apply themselves, they can learn and they can solve and accomplish tasks. It's this subtle way in which we can either somewhat lock our children into a belief that they're going to be good at math or not good at math, good at writing or not good at writing, when we praise them in certain ways that say, oh, your right hand or left, uh, right or left-sided brains. It can create neural pathways that allow us to perceive the world a certain way. Now, I want to suggest that that's not only true of individuals, but it is true in a corporate sense as well. And as God's people throughout generations understood who they were and perceived the world, it caused them to think certain things about the way God's blessing would be manifest, what it looks like for God to be good, and what it means to be called His sons and daughters and to have a role in and through this world bringing the kingdom of God. And that part of what is happening in Jerusalem in this season is God, through various means, rewiring the collective neural pathways of His people that we might more clearly perceive both our role and our power and our responsibility to be parts of seeing the kingdom of God move forward. That we often need as God's people, corporately and collectively, to be rewired in our thoughts and perceptions of the world around us in light of the work of the Holy Spirit in the kingdom of God. I might suggest, that's a nice way of putting it, the collective understanding of the American church is one where we, we may have perhaps congratulated ourselves too often, affirmed ourselves too much, self-congratulatory in a way that makes it very hard for us to be self-reflective. It makes it hard for us to, to examine those ways in which corporately and individually we have not always lived in line with the ethics of the kingdom of God in our care for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the alien at the gate. In ways in which our own understandings of our responsibilities to work may have created inadvertently a misunderstanding of why people are poor or an excuse for why perhaps we did not respect different races, why we haven't always honored our women in roles outside of the home. Are there ways in which collectively 
we have erred as the church and perhaps given certain cultural norms, biblical blessing, and now as we come to an increasing realization that those were unwise and unbiblical, are we really understanding their implications? Are we confessional enough? Are we repentant enough to have our minds rewired? Or do we excuse them as simply being times when the church was lost in its own time, blind to the difficulties that they faced? But we've also perhaps not only been a little too complimentary of ourselves and not self-evaluative, but we might also have a tendency to have overstressed the stranger danger side of things. Right, So we become really afraid of the world and really afraid of people who are different than us. And we find that we keep creating more and more institutions parallel to those in our society which protect us from interacting with those who are not like us. Is there a way in which our neural pathways are both positive about how amazing the things that we've done are and God has used the American church in many positive ways, but have we failed to also be evaluative? And have we also, in our response to changing cultures and times, created neural pathways that are so afraid of those changes that we isolate ourselves increasingly from our very calling and role? I say that because we have to ask ourselves the question, who sets the agenda for our lives, individually and corporately? And what we see here in this passage is that God sets the agenda for His church and for His people. And He will accomplish His tasks, whether He needs to use an encouraging word or a stronger nudge. But there is a calling. And we need to be perceptive enough to understand what it is as we depend on the Holy Spirit and as we look at God's gifts and as we have new neuro and theological pathways created so that we can understand the implications of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God that has come, that is the gospel, that Jesus says the good news is here, and they say, why? He says, because the kingdom of God has come amongst you. The ethics and the reality, the spiritual and the eternal, the momentary, the material and the physical have been transformed and our brains need to be rewired to appreciate the reality of the kingdom and our role in it. So why, as we read in chapter 8, does the mob uh, turn? Why does the mob turn? We looked at this last week. But the persecution comes because... Stephen has undermined certain presuppositions about what makes good, moral Jewish folks. Just trying to get by, just trying to work hard. All of those things that we collectively would acknowledge are good attributes of a good society when good folks try and do good things and simply apply what they understand. We have to acknowledge that the challenge is that persecution against God's people often can come from good people who are exposed to the complications of the kingdom of God which transcend cultural norms of the day. Even if in many ways those cultural norms are good. It's why we don't put an American flag in our sanctuary. As wonderful and a blessing as it is to be in this country, we do not want to reinforce the notion 
that in this church there is one country that we are committed to. We live in a transcendent kingdom. We have one loyalty. We submit to those in authority over us. We work for the good of the city. We do all that God calls us to, but we always acknowledge that there is only one true king, and he didn't get elected. He was installed. And we have one loyalty, even as we serve on the context of those who are called to live in any given country at any given time. And it is when we find on occasion that the truth of the gospel is brought, it is a challenge to those who are leaders. And Stephen probably was good that he didn't check in with his uh, presbytery or session as to whether or not he should have preached a sermon that aggressively critiquing Jewish history. Sometimes it is suggested that we not preach such aggressive sermons evaluating recent history of God's people because it might disturb the cultural understandings of the people in the pew. Persecution happens against God's church, not surprisingly, perhaps surprisingly, when the religious sensibilities of the masses are provoked by the values and ethics of the kingdom of God. They're, of course, taken advantage of by those in power. So the question is, why did the persecution happen? And why did before, when persecution was suggested and it was voted down, what happened? This is just good politics 101. Those who were threatened in the Sanhedrin needed the masses to be excited too. So at that moment, Gamaliel was, Gamaliel, I just butchered his name, was not excited about unleashing persecution because at that moment, the masses were excited about what Peter and the apostles were doing. People were being healed. Good things were happening. There was no support in the populace for a persecution. But as soon as a section of the populace becomes excited about persecuting, who's standing right there? The right-hand man, Paul himself. The Sanhedrin very quickly supports the work because now those in authority see how they can use the anger of the people to eliminate the threat to their power. It's just how politics works. It's how sin works in the normal flow of life. We see it in every age. The temptation to use the propaganda of the day to incite excitement among the people that the power structures might stay the same. And the calling of God's people is to transcend, to not be worried about the political fallout. Stephen is not called to preach a more temperate sermon because of the implications that it might have on the local church. He preaches a sermon, and godly men grieve and weep over his passing. So the persecution happens because the environment is, is from a horizontal perspective, ripe for the persecution. God is uh, the king. 
God is the king. He is sovereignly going to use this. That's the horizontal. We can understand the political, and Scripture calls us to be wise so we can discern the times and not be surprised when certain things happen because sin is incredibly predictable. So we should be wise in the ways of the world and not surprised at how the body politic can become inflamed about critique and in fear of the other. But what's called to here in this passage is a recognition that God will and is going to use that to accomplish His purposes. What is God's purposes? Well, God's purposes, according to Genesis 15, is to use His people to be a blessing to all the nations. And at this point, the disciples may or may not have a big enough vision to understand what that means. Matthew 28, Jesus says, "...go make disciples of all nations." And we saw a promise of this at Pentecost because Jews from every nation were there and they heard the gospel preached in their own languages and it was the beginning of, and yet now we are months and months in and there has been no move outside. And in Acts chapter 1, we hear the uh, additional explanation as Jesus is about to ascend. And he, what does he say? He says, look, you're going to be my disciples. Wait for the Holy Spirit to come. And then when you receive the word and power by the Spirit, you will go and preach the word. And then that wonderful phrase that every church uses to explain its philosophy of ministry is that we want to minister locally and then we want to minister regionally and then we want to minister to the whole world. But how effectively do we do it, which is another question but it is Jerusalem, Judea, and the ends of the earth, and they're still in Jerusalem. And the king has an agenda. And his people can either move under their own power or he will move them, but the kingdom will go forward. And if he does use, at times, social disruption, which causes us to have to flee our homes that we might be again engaged in the work of the kingdom, then so be it. You see, the work of the kingdom trumps my own needs and desires for what I know and my comfort. I serve a king, not a consultant. When we wrestle with churches that, that, that discuss whether or not we are going to be a church that is either something that is uh, uh, inward focused or outward focused, the novelty, the hilarity of that, of course, is we think we have a choice as if somehow the divine isn't going to be rather amused if it isn't something of a, of a, of a Psalm chapter 2. I mean, Psalm 2, the Lord laughs. We, we haven't decided whether we're going to be inward focused or outward focused. That <laughs> is so cute that you think you have a choice. Care for my people that they might care for one another in the world around them. This, of course, it's never an either or situation, but God will move his people out. And the persecution is the thing that gets the church out of Jerusalem. It is the way in which they become a blessing to all the nations. This is a key text because it is both a warning and an encouragement. It is a warning that the king will do all that the king promises to accomplish in spreading the gospel. And his people can either participate as they see and look forward in a willing and, and uh, winsome fashion, or he may have to move us by a bit of force. But the option to see the kingdom spread is just simply not one that the church has to make. It is not something that we, even the disciples themselves, 
have the power to abdicate. We're called to be a blessing to all the nations. That means loving the other, loving our enemies as ourselves, even as we care for our own widows and orphans within the body of Christ. So how is your brain going to get rewired? How do we do that individually and corporately within the church? First of all, it's Christ and the Holy Spirit. What did Stephen see? He opens his eyes and he sees the Son standing at the right hand of the Father. There is, of course, the centrality of knowing Christ intimately and his ministry. It's what drives Stephen and it is what will change Paul. Paul is going to come into a personal understanding of who Jesus is. He's going to see him seated at the right hand. He's going to be asked the question, why do you persecute me? And then after his conversion and baptism and initial interaction, he says that he goes away and studies for years and understands everything then in light of Christ. He understands all of Scripture in light of Christ, which makes him this most amazing evangelist to the rest of the world. You see, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the acknowledgement of Christ, but then it's going back into Scripture through the lens of Christ through the radical lens of Christ and being willing to have our cultural presuppositions exposed. Part of what I would encourage is that we doubt our culture more. And I mean the culture that we have within our church, within the American church. Do we doubt our culture enough? Are we willing to have it evaluated? Because one way or another, it will be. It's either by our participation by the Holy Spirit or by the work of God if it is contrary to the ethics and character of His nature. It will be evaluated at some point. Again, it's not an option. But to be able to have our own minds reevaluated and transformed and set free by those new ways of thinking that build on the reality of who Christ is and the last thing we need is we need diverse friendships. Paul is going to be exposed to thinking through Jesus. The disciples increasingly are going to be exposed to the thinking of Jewish and Greek converts. Paul, uh, Peter is going to have to have Jesus start to rearrange his thinking again in a chapter or two when we deal with the fact that he's supposed to go and spend time with Roman centurions. And he has to have his understanding of what's clean and unclean changed. We need people in our lives, within the body of Christ, who don't always agree with us, who challenge us in our understanding of Scripture. If we become, in one way or another, a community which always agrees on those things that are key in our lives, how we care for our wives, how we raise our children, if we find ourselves always just being affirmed and in some way or another comforted, Yes, I know what you're feeling. No, I don't have any more answers than you do. Then you need to find some friends who have some answers. And not that they have all the answers or not that you won't speak into their life, but if there's a collective sense of there's nothing we can know and nothing we can do to see our lives grow and our marriages strengthen and to see the kingdom of God move forward, then we need some people in the room who say, I have an idea of how we can do that. There is actually a way to interact in such a way that the kingdom of God will move forward. We need to have diverse friendships that speak into our lives and challenge us, even as they comfort. 
even as they identify with us. I don't know if I have this closing illustration just because it reminds me of good days in working in Wyoming, but uh, I worked at a livestock auction and uh, growing up, and we would have special sheep sales, and there would be lots and lots of sheep. And one thing sheep do when they are nervous uh, is they, when you open the gate to their pen, they will go to the farthest corner and they will almost suffocate each other, uh, packing tighter and tighter into the corner, away from an open gate. And we had to literally grab sheep and throw them out. And if you had to usually throw about a third of the sheep out of the pen before the rest of them realized that there was a way out. And most of the time we had to keep pushing the other ones because they'd want to come back in and run back under. And some of the illustration about God saying that we are, shep- we are sheep and we need to be led and directed. That we have in our own tendency a mindset, a herd mindset, that often causes us in the midst of transition and change to put our heads deeper down and pack in more tightly in the hope and expectation that somehow that will create safety. But it does not. It simply blinds us to the opportunities that God has, the open gate to lead us out into green fields. Some of those fields we go to through a valley of a shadow of death. It is not always peaceful and it is not always easy. But to simply stay jammed into one corner of a pen with the expectation and hope that it might be somewhat safer is a failed philosophy. We cannot stay in Jerusalem. As much as we may love it, we are called to go to every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. The king desires to give us all the resources necessary to safely see us there and to safely see us home. But we have to have our minds rewired, our thoughts encouraged about what it is to be his people and what it is to be the ones who are ambassadors who serve a king. We are called to go out. The early church was sent out this season with a rather firm nudge, and God used it to transform the world. God has that same calling on his church today, whether it is within this community, within our state, and yes, to be sure, to continue to support missionaries who bring the gospel around the world. But I would contend, even as we do it today, there are places where we can see green fields ready for harvest that we are called to go and enjoy if we'd just be willing to leave the pen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word, that you might again encourage us, that you delight to use us. Lord, we pray that we might enjoy what it is to see the goodness of our God in the land of the living, to see many come to faith, to see covenant children grow up with the hope and expectation of their lives being a part of lives that are transformed by the gospel. Lord, increasingly, our only fear the right fear of you that brings wisdom. We pray these things. We long to see them. Show us in your patience how we might enjoy them in ever greater degrees. Amen.